Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Tomorrow's car is in stock today. Tech drive the Hyundai Tucson turbo diesel all-wheel drive. Mornings on SEN. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Julian DeStoop with you to kick off another week. I hope you had a fabulous weekend and shaping up another beautiful Melbourne day as we get down to the business end of the tennis. And all eyes tonight will be on Alex Dimonor versus Novak Djokovic. Now, it's fair to say the moment has arrived for Alex Dimonor. Round of 16, Rod Laver Arena, night session, last Aussie standing in against the best in the business, Novak Djokovic. The country loves Alex Dimonor. He loves playing for Australia. He's universally admired, but he hasn't had that big, big win, which has seen him be the focus of national attention. Tonight, he gets his chance. I'm very happy. I can't lie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Look, honestly... As a kid, this is what you train for, to be playing on this court in front of you guys in the biggest stages of the world, and it just... Every time I get out here, I've got to pinch myself, and, you know, I'm, I just enjoy what I do every day, and I'm just happy, so thank you guys so much for making it so special. I'm just excited. I had another chance to go out here, play against the best in the world and, you know, show what I'm made of. Rate Alex's chances uh, pretty high. Uh, I, I think Novak is um, fully aware of, of uh, the young Australian's ability um, and, and I think he's got to be prepared for a, a lengthy match. Uh, you know, it, it, um, over the last couple of matches, I've, Alex, I feel like I've seen, you know, two different players uh, I think it was in the third round, maybe. Uh, he, he had to play Adrian uh, Manorino. And it was just a, a, a game that didn't suit Alex at all. Um, the, the last round against Benjamin Bonzi, Alex came out on RLA and was, uh, you know, he had, had targets and he had a lot of pace to work with uh, from Bonzi's end of the court. So I think, you know, with Novak, uh, um, you know, probably had laid eyes on him uh, just to track um, you know the the form of Alex, and um, look, I, I I just think you know Novak's got to be playing at a high level, and that's where you know the, the it's really questionable. Will he be able to maintain this? You know, dropping only one set so far. I I think this is going to be an absolute battle tonight. So we know Novak's played through injuries before. He won the tournament a few years ago with some strained stomach muscles. So is he vulnerable against arguably the quickest player in the game? As Mark Woodford mentioned there on Breakfast this morning, for all the talk about his hamstring, he's just dropped the one set. Oh, what a finish. Djokovic straining every sinew. It's, it's really a roller coaster, honestly. It requires a lot of energy that is being spent from, from my side mentally and physically as well. I'll take it match by match. I just 
I, I don't know what awaits, uh, but I, I, I do hope and I have faith for the best. So all eyes will be on Rod Laver Arena tonight. On the women's side, with Ash Barty retired, Igis Fiontech was the dominant player of 2022 and a red-hot favourite to win her first Australian Open. In her own words, the pressure of expectation and favouritism proved too much in a straight sets loss to Wimbledon champion Elena Rybakina. It's for sure I need to work on my, I don't know, kind of mindset um, and fight a little bit more as I did last season. So uh, for sure I'm going to take take time uh, right now to kind of reset. Past two weeks have been pretty hard for me. I felt like I, t- I, like I t- took, took a step back in terms of uh, how I approach these tournaments and I maybe wanted it a little bit too hard. So I'm going to try to chill out a little bit more, that's all. Well, I felt, I felt the pressure and I felt... Um, that I don't want to lose instead of that I want to win. So that's, I think, um, it's a base of what I should work, uh, what I should focus on in the next couple of weeks. So Coco Golf was seen as one of the biggest threats to Sviantec. The pair were headed for a quarterfinal showdown, so we thought. But the American is on her way home as well, following a shock loss to Yelena Ostapenko, which almost left the American in tears when she faced the media. I think it's because I worked really hard and I, you know, I felt really good coming into the tournament and I still feel good. Like I still feel like I've improved a lot. Um, You know, when you play a player like her and she plays really well, it's like, you know, there's nothing you can do. And I feel like today, um, I wouldn't say nothing because every match you play a part in, but I feel like it was rough. Um, So it's a little bit frustrating on, on that part. Okay. I'm okay. You want to stop? No, no, we can keep going. So a tough loss there for Coco Goff to swallow. Now, we saw last night Stefano Tsitsipas got through in five sets uh, against the Italian Yannick Sinner. And earlier in the day, it was Sebastian Corda. So 25 years after his father, Peter, saluted at Melbourne Park, winning the title in 1998, Sebastian is through to a Grand Slam quarterfinal for the first time, but this isn't your usual father, sorry, son following in the father's footsteps story. I didn't play a tournament outside of Florida until I was um, 15 years old. Basically, my first tournament uh, outside of Florida was an ITF and um, uh, in in Houston, Texas. So it was a uh, my parents kind of brought me up in a different way. I also started playing tennis uh, a lot later than most people. A lot of people here started tennis at three, four, five uh, years old. I, I switched over when I was 10 years old. Um, so I definitely have a different path uh, compared to everyone else. But, um, yeah, we we had a couple clay courts right next to our house. And majority of my life, I, or when I first started, was only clay court for me. Yeah, I, was, I, was, uh, I played ice hockey until I was um, 10 years old. I switched over because I went to the U.S. Open in 2009 with, with my dad and Radek. And he made round of 16, I think it was. Uh, and he played Novak on Arthur Ashe at like 10.30 at night, completely packed. Um, and that was just the moment I went back the next day and I said, this is um, this is what I want to do. I fell in love with the energy, the crowd, um, the way the sport's played, how mental it is. And um, yeah, just the rest is history. So Sebastian joked earlier in the tournament, he is the least talented sports person in his family. So Dad Peter won the Australian Open and reached number four. 
Mum Regina reached 26 in the world of tennis and twice reached the round of 16 at the US Open. Sister Nellie is a major winner, gold medalist, and has reached world number one in golf. He's won 12 times on the LPGA Tour. And his other sister, Jessica, is a six-time winner on the LPGA Tour and has been world number 16. So the question I'm putting to you this morning, give us a call on the EFS open line, one 736 or send us through a 40 Winks temper text, 0433-981116. Temper, a mattress like no other. Consumer's choice winner. Temper mattresses, pillows, and adjustable bases conforms to the exact shape of your body. This could be the quarters, the most talented high-achieving sporting family we've seen in the world of sport. So the condition on this is it has to be across more than one sport. So we've, we've seen a lot of talented families in Australia, in Aussie Rules, for example, where you've seen, you know, look at the Silvanis, for example, Serge and then Stephen and now Jack, who's on the verge on the verge of becoming the first family where three members have played 100 games. But we want across multiple sports. And it's hard to see anyone else outside the quarter that could match them now. Maybe there's some I'm missing. We're getting some through on the 40 Winks temper. For example, uh, Joachim Noah, of course, the son of Yannick Noah, a major winner himself at the French Open. Uh, Joachim's been a star in the NBA. Uh, Brothers Clay Thompson, of course, plays for the Golden State Warriors. And Trace Thompson, who plays for the LA Dodgers. Uh, How about the Kerrs? They're not bad. Sam Kerr, Daniel Kerr. The Starks aren't bad, says Rick in Ringwood North. Mitch Stark and his brother Brandon, who's an Olympic, has uh, performed at the Olympics uh, before in the high jump. Uh, so give us a call, one three hundred seven three six seven three six. 736 736 It even can be sporting families you've known at a local level, whether you went to you know, went to school with this family that, uh, you know, were freaks across a number of sports or even uh, at your local footy club, you know, netball club, you know, it might be these high achieving families. So give us a call one 736 736 on the EFS open line or send us through a 40 winks temper 0433 98 I can't, I won't, I've got one in Australia that is, could go pretty close but I won't mention it yet in case uh, someone wants to give us a call. On the McCafe menu today, uh, plenty of tennis. Uh, Daniela Hanchakova is going to join us uh, after 11 o'clock. She's been a semi-finalist at the Australian Open before. She's part of the SEN tennis uh, commentary team. I want to talk to her about her ability to speak languages. So she speaks Slovak, Czech, English and German, plus she can speak some Croatian and Italian. Most of us are struggling to speak English, so it's, it's, that's an unbelievable performance from Daniela Hanchikova. Uh, Steve Quick will join us from Ace Previews to give us a, a snapshot of what happened on the weekend and what might happen today uh, at the Australian Open. Now, big weekend in the round ball code, both locally and internationally. Um, of course, uh, Dwight York gone from MacArthur Bulls, gave the team an almighty spray after their loss to Adelaide, referred to them as a pub team, had a go at the whole standard of Australian football, if reports are true. Uh, So he's gone. And then a big match overnight between Arsenal and uh, Manchester United in the Premier League. So we'll talk all things world game with Andy Harper. Nick Dasty's going to join us from Golf Australia. Uh, Some exciting tournaments coming up uh, in golf in the next few weeks and uh, an increase in prize money as well. So I'll speak to Nick about that. And, uh, of course, the NFL really heating up. Uh, Two matches yesterday. We've got one going on at the moment between Cincinnati and Buffalo in the snow in Buffalo. Uh, So Benny Graham will join us there. And just before we get uh, to the open line, uh, keen to get your thoughts on this one as well. It happened after we went off air 
on Friday. And certainly last Friday afternoon, the Australian sporting public was shocked to read Commonwealth Games silver medalist and Olympic finalist Peter Bowl has returned a positive test for EPO. I was in shock. I think most of the athletics community will be in shock. He inspires Australia. He inspires the next generation. So what he does to the country of Australia as a whole is huge. I can't imagine what Peter must be feeling and going through right now um, because I know that I'm feeling impatient because I want to know the results of the B sample as well. EPO's via injection. I don't know of any oral way to get EPO into your system without knowing, and it's pretty hard for me to put a needle in your neck without you knowing you've had an injection. So it's quite extraordinary for an EPO test to come up on someone who doesn't know how they've got into their system. Unfortunately, historically, people that have had a positive A sample on EPO, it's pretty rare that they don't have a positive on, on the B sample as well. So that was the voices of Sally Pearson, our last uh, gold medalist uh, track and field athlete at the Olympics. And Dr. Peter Larkins was the last voice you heard there. That was on Channel 7 on Saturday night. So as Dr. Larkins said there, um, in all probability, the B sample is going to come back positive. If that is the case, Peter Boll is facing a four-year suspension, which, of course, rules him out of the Olympics uh, next year. Have you got any thoughts on that? Were you shocked? Do Do you think he's innocent? Do you think the writing's on the wall? Um, give us a call, one 736 736 Like Craig from McRae, it gets me every time I see it. Craig from McRae has uh, given us a call. He wants to join in with famous sporting families or successful sporting families. G'day, Craig. G'day, mate. Um, what about Daryl White, AFL? His son's in the NBL and daughter's in the National Netball. Yeah, that's a good one. That is a good one locally. I didn't... I didn't. So who's to their daughter play netball for? Oh, uh, I'm not sure. Queensland or one of them. Okay, she's in the National League, though. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful, Craig. That is a, a good nomination. Still getting plenty coming through on the 40 Winks uh, temper as well. I'll read some of those uh, after the break. Uh, plenty going on in uh, sport. Uh, the BBL, it's meant to be a you know a fluky sort of competition, but the Scorchers and Sixers are that far ahead of the rest. It's uh, not funny. The Renegades are hanging in there trying to make the finals. As we know, it's been a season to forget for the Melbourne Stars. The NBL is coming down to a gripping uh, conclusion to the season, a real race for the playoff spots uh, and the play-in spots. A good win for Phoenix yesterday against the Wildcats. United got the points again against Adelaide, so they've got a couple of games to go. We saw the Breakers upset the Kings yesterday, so it is one of the more enjoyable and unpredictable seasons uh, we have seen uh, in the MBL as well. So plenty uh, to talk about uh, today. Let's get our first break away. Uh, this is mornings for the Hyundai Tucson Turbo Diesel in stock now. We've got plenty of time uh, to take your calls and uh, read through your temper text uh, after the break. Tomorrow's car is in stock today. Tech drive the Hyundai Tucson Turbo Diesel all-wheel drive. Mornings on SEN. Welcome back to the show, Julian DeStoop. With you, plenty coming through on our 40 Wigs temper for talented sporting families. So the, the criteria here, this is off the back of Sebastian Corder winning at the Australian Open yesterday. And a fair point, too, he's, both of his sisters actually won the Australian Open women's golf 
uh, in the past. We know Peter's an Australian Open champion. Uh, his mum also was a successful uh, tennis player, reaching 26 in the world. So we want to know who have been the most successful and talented sporting families, past or present. The one criteria is it's got to be across more than one sport. So plenty coming through. Love to take your calls, one three hundred seven three six seven three six. We're also talking, uh, I guess, the shock announcement on Friday afternoon that uh, Peter Bowl, who's been such a popular figure in this country, such a role model and such a great athlete, has tested positive. These A sample has tested positive for EPO. Uh, and Andrew from Nidri's jumped on the line, wants to talk about that story. Get Andrew. Uh, Jules, good morning. And how, how disappointing the story is um, and how uh, typical that we've, uh, the media and, uh, and the sporting uh, fraternity in Australia are basically uh, jumping to Peter's defence. Um, Look, I, I, you know, I'm just a bit tired with the hypocrisy about, um, you know, when an Australian um, athlete or sports person gets caught up in this sort of thing. You know, we always look at it can't be true. It, it's, a, it's a stitch up, um, you know, uh, innocence, um, and then they find out that they ha- have been taking it, and, and then you know, and then it all ends up in a bad way. I'd just like to know how, what other way would this substance get into a body if it's not injected. Well, yeah. Well, you heard from Dr. Peter Larkins there before, Andrew, that uh, he doesn't know a way that orally it can be um, admitted to the body. So really, um, injection is the only way, according to from what Dr. Peter Larkins has heard uh, in the past. And I think, as he rightly said to the reporter there, Nick McCallum, I think you'd know if I'm putting a needle in your body. Oh, for sure. Um, but the other thing would be, uh, would there be? Uh, where was this? Where was it, the test, uh, the drug test taken, or the um, the sample taken? Which where? Which sports sporting event? Or you know, do we know where it was? Um, where he was competing? Uh, look, I think it was just a. It might have just been a random drug test. I'll look into that. It was in October last year, and only the results came through. I think on the eleventh of January. So that's why there's been a. A delay for this story to come out because the results have just come out. Now we're waiting on the on the B sample in the next uh, in the next uh, well couple of weeks. Yeah, so I reckon his career is basically nearly over now, or delayed for four years. But um, the only only other way I could see if there's been a switch and watch too many movies, um, <laughs> a switch in the samples, um, and yeah, you know, and got stitched up. But um, that'd be that'd be high, highly unlikely, really. You know, like uh, why you know. Uh, but um, there's always a possibility there, but um, very thin, very thin. No, I think you're right, Andrew. I think it is uh, that is uh, very unlikely. Now, look, I feel like we're changing a little bit in terms of our stance, but if you're just looking at listening to some calls and also look, reading some of the 40 Winks temper texts, it's not all sympathy for Peter Bolt. There's a lot of people saying, well, the odds are that uh, he's done it and therefore there is no sympathy. So I think we're slowly... Uh, changing that situation. And uh, as I heard Sam Edmund and Simon O'Donnell speak this morning, that is, I guess, the sad reality of sport and Australian sport as well, that uh, I don't think we're shocked anymore when an Australian athlete tests uh, positive uh, to a performance-enhancing drug, which we might have been uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Thanks for your call, uh, Andrew. Getting plenty of on the 40 Wings temper, as we mentioned, about the most uh, successful sporting families. The criteria, of course, more than one sport. So just on uh, Daryl White, uh, just getting some updates here. His daughter is playing uh, college basketball uh, in the States. Uh, his 25-year-old son, Daryl McDowell White Jr., 
is a Category B rookie uh, with the Brisbane Lions uh, this year. And uh, his other brother, William McDowell-White, uh, was signed by the Houston Rockets not that long ago and played for the New Zealand Breakers uh, in the NBL. So that is a, a talented uh, sporting family. Some of the others uh, coming through. This is the one I was thinking of, and it's come through uh, a few times now. It's the Blitzarfs. So, of course, Mark Blitzarfs, a Geelong Premiership player. Just a little rumour going around. I don't know if this has been uh, made public before, Ben, that he might have done some steeplechase in the past. I don't know if you've heard that. That that, that might get some. Uh, that might get follow-up today. The fact that Mark Blitzars was an athlete, but uh, yes, he wasn't an athlete in a former life. His his, his sister Sarah uh, plays for the Opals. His father played basketball for Australia, as did his mum. So that's that's a pretty talented uh, family, Australian version of uh, the Blitzars. So that's come through uh, pretty strongly. Um, see, this doesn't quite qualify because it's only one sport, but the Froling family, six family members all played NBL slash WNBL. Uh, the Dunkleys, Dom from Armstrong Creek. Yeah, the sister, very good netballer. And, of course, Andrew Dunkley, Josh Dunkley, and even Kyle Dunkley uh, played a few games uh, for the Demons. Dustin Fletcher and his two boys who are currently punting in America, says Liam from Bendigo. Uh, Mitch and Sean Marsh, their sister played WNBL, cousin of West Coast Brad Shepard. Uh, that's also from Liam. Uh, so plenty coming through. A local family has to be the side bottoms. Still playing for Collingwood, Ryan played cricket for Victoria and in England. His three other brothers have dominated local country football and cricket uh, for 20 years. Uh, John Jones and Chandler Jones, UFC and NFL. Jack Trengove and Jess Trengove. That's a good one. Uh, Rod Marsh and Graham Marsh is a really good one. Uh, Both very high achievers in golf and cricket, uh, respectively. And this is another example of what we're talking about uh, with Peter Bowl, that uh, not every... One is sympathetic. Uh, So this one came through. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the women's 800-metre running world record set during rampant drug use in the 1980s. It's a disgrace that this record is allowed to stand. Please show no sympathy to performance-enhancing drug users. Another one here. Agree about Peter Bowl. Media says all Russian athletes are part of a systemic drug problem, but our athletes are always innocent. Um, So it's not not all sympathy and all... you know, it must be a mistake, and and Peter wouldn't do that. Um, so uh, it, it's it, that's a bit of a snapshot of what we're getting. It was out of season testing um, as well uh, for Peter Bowl um, when he was submitted uh, to that drug test. That oh, that can't be right, Ben. Surely what you put on the screen. Scott Penelope played basketball. Why hasn't that come out after three hundred and fifty games that Scott Penelope played basketball? I never heard that before. Uh, anyway, let's get to the newsroom uh, with uh, Anna Pavlou. Plenty of time to take your calls. one 736 736 Thank you, Anna. I hope Ben off the 40 Winks temper is taking the mickey. He said, everyone knows Pendle's played basketball. Come on, mate. Now, Ben, you must know I was taking the mickey there. That's almost another topic. What are you sick of hearing about certain sportsmen? I don't want to hear Scott Pendle played basketball. And I know Tom Stewart was plucked by Matthew Scarlett out of South Barwon. And I know Mark Blitzars was a steeplechaser in the past. Is there anything with the footy this year in particular? You don't hear that again. We know the backstory. We don't need it rammed down our throats. So that's another topic you want to give score. one 736 736 40 wings temper 0433 98 Sick of Mark Stevens tweeting about the Bulldogs. That ain't going to stop. 
He loves his doggies, does old Steve-O. You can give us a call on the open line for EFS, delivering simple freight solutions. Great nominations coming through for talent and sporting family. Some I wasn't even uh, aware of. This is a good one. This is a rare combination. So you've got Fraser Brown, uh, Carlton Premiership player, and his mum, of course, Joyce Brown, uh, coached the Diamonds. Uh, so that is a unique uh, combination. Uh, Ken Norton in boxing and Ken Norton Jr. in NFL. I can't say I know much about uh, either of those two. Uh, Jules, Jamie Carr with horse racing and both her parents represented Australia in speed gating at the Winter Olympics. Cheers block in Ringwood. Uh, Rory Sloan and his sister Shay, who captained the Australian volleyball team. Uh, so there's plenty coming through. Uh, Hugh Greenwood, North Melbourne AFL, played college in Australian junior basketball. Sister, college basketball. Mum, premiership and national comp and Australian representative. Dad, Australian water polo representative and champion. Cheers, Mark, on the Sunshine Coast. Uh, Multi-talented families. The Kale family from South Australia. That's a very good one. Uh, Father was a champion footballer, champion tennis player. Of course, uh, John Kale, one of the greatest coaches of all time. And Darren Kale, very good player. Outstanding coach. Uh, John from Gisborne's uh, jumped on the line. I've got a question about the tennis on the EFS open line, uh, delivering simple freight solutions. G'day, John. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, thanks, mate. Look, I've forgotten your name. Sorry. Julian. <laughs> Julian, sorry, that's right. Look, I just got a question. I, I thought it's quite strange that no one's mentioned this at all in the coverage, is that why that Matt Ebden and Matt Purcell aren't playing doubles together, considering that they were runners-up in the Australian Open yeah, last year. that's a good point. And they won Wimbledon. Uh, who are they? Who are they respectively playing with? Uh, Matt Purcell was playing with Jordan Thompson, and I think Matt Evans was playing with I think Bopana is his name. Oh, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, yep, yep. So I just thought that's strange. No one's mentioned that once. I don't know. We're thinking, well, did they have a fallout, or they just decided to go their separate ways? It's quite odd. That's a very good question. We'll probably have Mark Woodford on tomorrow or some stage during the week. So I'm going to ask him that. It doesn't make a lot of sense, does it, when you make an Oz Open final? And win Wimbledon, and then the Oz Open rolls around again, and you're not playing together. Uh, yeah, not really. Because I recently just listened to a podcast, and um, with Todd Woodbridge saying how it's, you know once they got together with he got together with Mark Woodford, that was the beginning of a 16 year marriage. That's true, <laughs> one of the most successful we've seen. Now I'll follow that up for you, John, because it does seem strange. And I don't know, Matty Ebden doesn't seem like the sort of bloke uh, that would fall out with people. So I can't imagine it to be uh, something like that. Uh, but we'll follow that one. Uh, up for you. Uh, just a few more off the 40 wings temper here. Apparently, Alex Carey played Aussie rules. Yeah, getting a bit sick of that one. Yes, he was on the original Giants list. We do know that. Uh, what I don't want to hear about is Essendon from you anymore, Jules. Sorry, can't help you. That's going to happen. Um, so uh, plenty going on uh, in the world of sport. Um, Premier League. We're going to talk to Andy Harper very shortly. But if you haven't caught up on what happened this morning, it was too... Well, one massive game and real throwback uh, to sort of the 90s and early 2000s with Arsenal and Manchester United playing in a huge game at the Emirates Stadium and and also, uh, you know, Wolves went to Man City. Man City just need to keep winning because Arsenal keep winning. This is how it all unfolded this morning. Stooping header, oh. Lissandro Martinez has got it in! The Argentinian World Cup winner! Scores his first ever goal for Manchester United. And it's back to 2-2 as Manchester United refuse to bow down. Nearly going to get away. Zinchenko to his left. Arriving is Odegaard. And it's in for Nketiah. And there's no 
Haaland steps up and scores comfortably. It's his second of the afternoon. It's Manchester City's second. Well caught out here, and Haaland could get a hat-trick. for Erling Haaland. And Manchester City are enjoying themselves now. Erling Haaland with another hat-trick in the Premier League. So that's how it unfolded this morning. Manchester United... Uh, Conceded that late goal, so Arsenal get the three points. And uh, been a bad couple of games for United. They're just taking one point out of a possible six. So you have to say it's a, probably a two-horse race uh, for the English Premier League title. Another hat-trick for Erling Haaland. That's four uh, in his first season of the Premier League. A 3-0 win for City uh, over Wolves, which keeps them close enough. But uh, Arsenal just keep surpassing uh, every test at the moment, and they remain on top of the table. Let's get another breakaway. Uh, plenty else to spin through. Ash Gardner, that was a big story uh, yesterday. Uh, keen to get your thoughts. She's not happy, and some other members of the Australian women's cricket team not happy that a match has been scheduled for Australia Day uh, for the Australian women. So we'll talk that and some other things in sport uh, after the break on mornings for the Hyundai Tucson Turbo Diesel. It's in stock now. Tomorrow's car is in stock today. Tech drive the Hyundai Tucson turbo diesel all-wheel drive. Mornings on SEN. Welcome back to the show. Julian DeStoop with you. Another great weekend for the Australian women's cricket team. Beth Mooney absolutely starring as the Aussies wrapped up their three-match series, one-day series against Pakistan, about to get stuck into some T20s before heading off to the World Cup in South Africa. They won that series 3-0. But the interesting story that came out yesterday from uh, star Ash Gardner, I'll just read you her statement and put a bit of context around the story and then keen to get your thoughts on it, one 736 on the EFS open line. I'll send us through a temper text 0433981116. Temper a mattress like no other. Uh, she said this on her social media yesterday. As a proud Murari woman and reflecting on what Jan 26 means to me and my people is a day of hurt and a day of mourning. My culture is something I hold close to my heart and something I'm always so proud to speak about whenever asked. I'm also fortunate enough to play cricket for a living, which is something I dreamt of as a kid. Unfortunately, this year, the Australian women's cricket team has been scheduled to play a game on the 26th of January, which certainly doesn't sit well with me as an individual, but also the people I'm representing. As a national team, we have a platform to raise awareness about certain issues, and I'm using the platform to hopefully help educate others on a journey to learn about the longest living culture in the world. For those who don't have a good understanding of what the day means, it was the beginning of genocide, massacres and dispossession. When I take the field for this game, I will certainly be reflecting and thinking about all of my ancestors and people's lives who were changed from this day. So Ashgarden is going to play uh, in the match. Now, according to reports, an Indigenous Advisory Committee approved the decision to play the fixture in Hobart on Jan 26. The committee consults with Cricket Australia as part of its Reconciliation Action Plan. And Cricket Australia in 2021 became the first major sporting code in the country to phase out the term Australia Day and it's instead described it as Jan 26. That was criticised at the time uh, by Prime Minister Scott Morrison. So the last time the Australian women's team played on Jan 26 was back in 2016. The men's team haven't played on Jan 26 since 2019. 
uh, but big bash games are often scheduled for the date. So have you got any thoughts on that one? Give us a call, 1300 736 736. This is just an example of, of some of the feedback we get. Uh, if Ash Gardner or two or three other players don't want to play, simple. Don't play them. They can have a day off. It's okay for them to express their opinion, but it's also okay for the other 70 or 80% of the population to express theirs. That's from Beardy from Bitten. Uh, so happy to get your thoughts uh, either way on this one. Um, yeah, it feels like we're getting closer to, to changing the date for Australia Day, which I personally I think would be the right thing to do. Um, it's clearly a day of, of hurt for Indigenous people, and that's not what the National Day should be. But I know a lot of people uh, think otherwise. Uh, so we're happy to, to, to collect your thoughts on that one three hundred seven three six seven three six. Uh, speaking of the Big Bash, uh, back on SEN tomorrow night, Renegades v Strikers uh, with big finals ramifications will be on the SEN Fanatic uh, on the SEN app. Uh, just a few more uh, 40 Winks uh, tempers to, to spin through on Peter Bowl. Uh, it does naturally occur in the body produced by the kidneys, but there is a synthetic version of it as well, which the B test will pick up. This is from Jack on the Road. There are some things that don't up, add up, including the timing. Normally something that would only have benefit in competition. This was picked up out of competition. He was just starting a training load, and on top of that, his times weren't improving. I really hope this one is proven not to be true. Uh, that was from Jack on the road. Uh, in terms of the tennis, sick of hearing about Novak's hamstring. If he's out there playing, he's fit and should be judged as fit. Sounds like he's prepping as, in, as an excuse in case he loses. Uh, another one on Peter Bowl. The saddest thing to me is the way the media and public judge others before the evidence is validated. Can we at least wait for the second sample to be tested before judging Peter Bowl? That's from Gwenda from uh, Bendigo. Uh, just on the tennis, we had a caller before saying, why aren't Matt Emden and Max Purcell playing together, given they made the Open final last year, losing to Kyrgios and Kokonakis, won Wimbledon. Uh, this is from Ricky. Uh, Ebden and Purcell. Ebden may be looking to play doubles the whole year with Papana, whereas Purcell may be looking to improve his singles rank and will have a very different schedule to Ebden. So it makes sense for Ebden to play more with the same player for the year. Thank you, Ricky. That makes uh, a lot of sense. A couple of other great sporting families. <laughs> this really counts. Uh, Rick Charlesworth on his own, Member of Parliament, Medical Doctor, WA Cricketer, and hockey and a hockey coach. Yeah, he's a pretty impressive uh, character. Uh, is Rick Charlesworth. I don't mind this one. Might not be aware, but basketball actually has a Scott Pendlebury background, not the other way around. Uh, Still, I'm sick of hearing that Petrarca is mates with Ben Simmons, Brad Green trained with Manchester United, and Todd Viney beat Boris Becker. Yeah, they all get a a fair uh, run through. I've got a question here about an update on the score for the NFL, the Bills and the Bengals. Um so if you don't want to know that score, there's seven minutes to go in the fourth quarter. Uh, just cover your ears now. We'll talk to Ben Graham about everything NFL uh, later in the show. But at the moment, the game is in Buffalo. It's snowing, but it's not looking like it's going to be a happy day for Buffalo. They're 10, Cincinnati 27. Uh, just under seven minutes to go uh, in the fourth term. Uh, let's get a couple of calls away. Uh, let's get to Nick from Hoppers, Hoppers Crossing. He's got a, a couple of topics he wants to tick off. Okay, Nick. Hey, good day, Jules. Thanks for taking my call. Nice to hear you still on the, on the line. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, what I wanted to say was, uh, first of all, I'll go with the positive. Well, not that they're negative, but I'll go with the positive. I'm, I'm very impressed and also shocked and surprised, pleasantly surprised, 
that um, Smudge, whatever they call him, Smitty, for the Sixers, um, is, is scored in centuries. He, no. The shots he's playing, unbelievable. I, I think it's, I think I think he's going to. He might go pretty good actually in India. He's, he's he's striking form at the right time, and he's in form. He's playing well, and um, yeah, and, and the captaincy is nowhere to be found any, anymore. Again, he's now not a captain. He's not vice captain. And I think you know what? I think he's playing better now than all with that kerfuffle, like what he was playing before. And I think because of the stress with that with that job and all that's all gone, he's now free flowing. He's not have to think about anything, and that's proving the, the selectors wrong. Why didn't you select me for the um, T20 World Cup? Look how I'm playing. He's showing them and telling them, look, I've scored a couple of centuries and the highest run run maker for the, for the um, Sixers as a central maker, and um, it's going really well. And then and the side's going pretty well. And the one they didn't pick him last season, what, what, how stupid was that? Well, he was in the squad for the World Cup and he played some matches, but he's, his form hadn't been great internationally in T20 cricket. And he hadn't played BBL uh, due to commitments and the, the crossover of seasons. But this little technique change that he's made uh, has worked beautifully in Test cricket and it appears to have worked wonders uh, in ba- Big Bash cricket as well, Nick. I couldn't agree more. Two centuries in three innings. Nine sixes the other night, and uh, as we say, he's come back in in red hot form. The sixes were good anyway, but you chuck in Steve Smith in that sort of form, they look unbeatable uh, at the moment. You also had a comment about the ladies' cricket. Yeah, um, look, the lady has um, look. I'll, I'll, I'll say here the women's cricketer, our, our women cricketer, Ashgarda, yep. Yeah, she has a, a, a right to opinion and all that, but I don't want the politics always interfering in sport. I know the twenty sixth of. Um, January is a bit is an issue there for the for the Aboriginal and Indigenous people and all that. That could be just renamed to something like a Settlement Day or or, or we have Federation Day when when Australia was created. We, there's a lot of things you could go around. But to be saying oh this and this, just take the day off, don't play it, and that's it. There's no problem, there's no issue because you're affecting these other players that probably want to play but we can't play because of respect to her. So I don't really agree with that side of it. But if she wants, doesn't want to play that day. I don't have a problem with that at all. No worries, Nick. Sorry, we're going to get to a break, mate. I really appreciate your call and uh, appreciate uh, your thoughts. Uh, Sam from Keelor Downs, hang on. We'll get to you on the other side of the break. This is mornings for the Hyundai Tucson Turbo Diesel in stock now. Let's get to Andy Harper. There's no debate here. He is the number one man uh, when it comes to football in Australia. Channel 10, Paramount Plus football expert, and he joins us again on a Monday. G'day, Andy. Jules, how are you, mate? I'm very well. Now, right now, the season's stopped. MacArthur are playing finals, yet Dwight York is gone, and it seems mainly off the back of a post-match spray in the dressing rooms. Yeah, I, look, I'm not, I'm not quite sure if it's as, uh, a singular issue as that. I think it might have been brewing for a while. Who knows? Um, but of course, you know, the news was broken on Saturday night, and then in the, in the following days, everyone's going to be piping into their sources in and around the club and conflicting views are going to come out. I don't, I, it, it seems to be pretty clear that there was a post-match blow-up. Whether this was an isolated thing or it was a pattern, we're not to know. Um, look, I, I've got to say, Jules, I, I'm a big fan of Dwight York. Um, we saw what he did as a player with the A-League, and I was very nervous at Sydney FC at the time about exposing the club to that sort of to that level of uh, financial exposure. Um, but I've, uh, I, on that issue over years, in the short term, even had to eat humble pie because he was just magnificent what he did to contribute to the start of the A League. I've been impressed with the way MacArthur has been operating on the field, give or take. Um, and I think he's, he's, 
from the outside looking in, he's a great person to have in your competition. Now, he might be a bit more difficult to work with. <laughs> um, I remember a couple of great lines when in the early days of Sydney FC, um, which, which, you know, for reasons of public consumption shouldn't be aired here. But um, he's a, he was always, always very focused as a player. There's no question about that. And his reputation in the dressing room as a player was someone who was incredibly professional, despite all the the bunting and trimmings around his reputation about All Night Dwight. When it came to the football, that was the, the sole focus of his existence. It was uh, it, He was really impressive on that front. I can't say whether he took the same attitudes to his coaching. I can only assume that he did. Um, and I've, I've quite enjoyed from the outside looking in, but it might be a different story in the belly of the beast, of course. So is this a, potentially a bit of a hasty decision? So it, it appears, you know, the chairman was in the rooms, uh, the CEO was mm. in the rooms, they, they heard the dressing down. Mm. Um, is this a premature decision, given, as you say, he's done some good things? He's a fantastic name for the... And, you know, he's, he's proven that in the A-League before, and they're sitting six on the table. So is yeah. this a premature decision? Well... Again, unless you've got a first-hand source who's prepared to come out uh, and, and not be anonymous and say, I was sitting there and this is what happened, we're just piecing things together. Um, if it was a one-off, maybe it might have been a bit rash, but in any workplace, again, and I'm not defending the decision um, uh, and the activation by the, the chairman of the club, but in any workplace, there are situations which, even if it is a one-off, in the eyes of the leadership, um, can be unacceptable. This might have been one of those cases. Um, uh, you know, there's no question that, that the large chunk of Dwight York's professional career, exalted as it was, was in the four walls run by Sir Alex Ferguson. Mm. That was a pretty unforgiving place. If he's modelled some of his coaching and management techniques around that, then maybe some sparks have flown. I don't know. Um, I, I just don't... It, I don't think it's fair to speculate that this was a knee-jerk reaction. Um... Because, you know, there's a lot at stake here. They've got a big name with a big coach in whom they've invested and they've won the cup at first time of asking and they're sitting in a finals position. I, 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 I think you need to... The decision-makers need to be offered a little bit more latitude than they've just flown off the handle um, on this particular matter. But, you know, I'm just going to... I'm going to encourage anyone who's listening who was actually inside the dressing room is prepared to put their name to comment... <laughs> To, to end the speculation one way or another. Well, one of the other things that's been reported from a source, as you said, is he referenced what he sees as a substandard culture right across multiple levels of the game in Australia. Mm, mm. That would be a concern. Well, well it's not a concern. It's, it, it's our battle. It's our battle um, constantly in football to elevate the game and the league to that status. I don't think he's spoken out of turn there. There might have been a bit more emotion around it. But none of us in the game here, as much as we love it, as, as, as good a product as the A-League men and women is on field, and I'll die in my ditch defending it. I think if you, if you want to strip away all the other stuff that affects people's perceptions, you actually want to look at the nuts and bolts of players getting up and down and around the field, um, uh, linking together in tactical formations, threatening goals, defending goals, providing excitement. It's a, they're leagues that stand on their own two feet. A lot of the stuff around the competition needs a lot of work. And there's not anyone in the game who's hiding away from that fact. So when Dwight York comes out and, and, and is alleged to have said that, you know, this is a substandard football culture, but, well, er, uh, duh. You know, we know <laughs> that. That's what, we're, that's what the hell we're mm. trying to work towards um, with a little bit of help. And Dwight is a big, a potentially a big part of turning that around. Now, what, what I do, I've always felt from the moment that MacArthur announced Dwight, 
was that this actually might end up being a difficult marriage between people in different parts of their life. Now, all the other stuff are going to be hot-button issues. But Dwight York has built his career in the glitz and glamour of the English Premier League. He's built his career at one of the best clubs in the history of world football, Manchester United. Um, that's his professional framework. That's the, that's the portal through which he's experienced and now views football. Very obviously, there's a massive chasm between that yeah. and, and, and the new first steps of an expansion club in the southwest of Sydney. So, you know, you don't have to be have to have been Nostradamus to have been half worried that at some point those tectonic plates might have crunched up against mm. each other. But nothing else that Dwight York has said if you look at it in context, should be scaring anyone. We know our reality more than anyone else, and that's what we're working to change. But we've got a good, pro- we've got very good um, products on the back of which to achieve that. Just what last one on Dwight. This is slightly uh, on a lighter note, um, and it's, I'm sure it's had nothing to do with his decision. But do you find it unusual? Normally, when a coach wears a cap to a post-match press conference, it'll have the team on it. He has yeah. a big DY on his cap. Uh, What's that about? Are you really worried about that, Jules? No, I, mean, I just thought know, it was a bit odd. No, I don't think it's odd at all. I mean, you know, Roger better return. I know he's not in that team, but he turns up with his uh, whatever it is. And, but that's an individual uh, sport, Andy. CR7, Ronaldo does it with his CR7 cap. I know Dwight's an individual. He's a big name. He's he's looking to get the DY brand out there. You know, good, good luck to him. I, none of that stuff I find a threat. I only find it a help. Um, actually... You know, I, I sort of hope, I really hope that that, there, that Dwight can find a place in his in his desire to to stay involved in the A League, which is going to require another job coming up somewhere. I'd imagine uh, that that'll be the real test to see whether he is completely dismissive of what happens down here uh, in Australia with the league and and whether he wants us to shoot through. And it, it's his prerogative to do either. Yeah, let's hope that is not the case. Talking to Andy Harper, Channel Ten Paramount Plus Football. Expert, uh, Melbourne victory, Perth glory. Pretty nasty incident there with Chris Economides and Jack Clisby, both shown straight red cards. Uh, you know, Economides for kicking out and the reaction from Clisby. What sort of punishment are those two players looking at, do you think? Uh, uh, weeks, weeks. Um, that'd be a two to a three week job, I'd imagine. But uh, because there was no actual damage done, but the, the, the intent was there and, and, and the game will. I believe should fall heavier, heavier on Chris Economides for lashing out. I mean, I mean, that's a really bad look. And I think most people in that situation, without necessarily defending Jack Clisby at all, um, can sort of empathise with the red must miss descending at that point. Um, it, was, it was a pretty incendiary action from Chris Economides, who was probably thought he'd escape with a boot full of loot, just getting the yellow card until VAR intervened. I don't know. If, there, uh, if, if there's to be a discrepancy between the sanctions handed down, I think it, I think that should hit uh, economies harder. I'd agree with that. And uh, so it builds up to Thursday. It's the traditional Australia Day, Jan 26, uh, match between uh, Victory and Sydney. Victory 12th, Sydney 10th. That's not normally where these two teams are at when we come along to this traditional game. So, no. gee, the pressure's on. Well, um not only is it not normally the case, this is the first time ever in the A-League when the Big Blues has had both protagonists in the Blues like this. Um, this is the, the, the match-off on Thursday is featuring two teams at their lowest point at this stage of any season, which brings its own storyline, I guess. And if, uh, 
the Jets had managed to kick on for a win last night, it actually would have been 11th versus 12th. Mm. Which is, it's just a, it's incredible. In some ways, a little bit of a metaphor for the game's current struggles. Um, but that's all cyclical and it's transient. Um, and come Friday, very possibly one of these teams might have moved through the immediate fog with a three-point win. I've got to say, even though victory last, I'm finding them, apart from the goals they conceded, it's going to sound stupid what I'm saying, but generally I'm finding they're a little bit finding them a bit more of a convincing product than Sydney FC at the moment. They look, Sydney looked really lacklustre on the weekend and, and, and away from home, Melbourne Victory were, were in it until individuals came up with some pretty ordinary moments and, and Perth threw out and Taggart got the winner. It's great for Perth and Taggart, the returning software, to get those two goals. Oh. But, but I, I, I've said this to you in the last few weeks, and I'm maintaining it, although um, I'm going to have to change tune if the team doesn't turn around soon. But I honestly don't think Victory are really that far away. But it's a real test of their inner belief at the moment if they can get through this. What about what about Steve Corica? How much pressure is on Steve right now? And yeah, um, well, everyone's looking for something to talk about, <laughs> and Sydney's stuttering season and Dwight York's availability has given them plenty of reason mm. to get excited uh, on the forums, etc. Um, there seems to be there seems to be a, a, a group a, a group think that is ushering in the end of Steve Corica. Um, now he's won trophies with a good team, of course. Um, multiple trophies. The first time of asking, they had a bad season last season, which is putting the, the here and now into a sharper focus. Um, but it's, it's it's almost like people have never really thought um, that he was up to the job. And they're just waiting now, just the fans running out. It's just a matter of time. Look, in that sense, I guess it's a matter of time for any coach. Their first day in the job is a day closer to them getting sacked. But, but there's, a, there's, this, there's, a, there's, a, there's a feeding frenzy around the potential of Steve Corica being shown the door. Now, that obviously you know, might happen sooner rather than later. Um, but again, I think look, if I'm running that club, I don't see a need at this point to expose the team to the turmoil unless it's completely broken inside and, and the club can only work that out. Um, I don't think there's a need to pull the trap door just yet, but that's not stopping people <laughs> from assuming that Dwight's available, therefore Corica goes. It could well happen, but I, to be honest, I believe it when I see it. Yeah, that's interesting now that Dwight is available, no doubt about that. Uh, English Premier League, Andy, it was like the old days of Ferguson, Wenger, Vieira, uh, Keane. It was Arsenal, Manchester United, right up the top end of the table, and uh, the game certainly didn't disappoint this morning. And, and Arsenal, if they needed to keep proving it, uh, are showing they're the real deal. I mean, I, I don't know quite... You know, never, you're never over the hump in the Premier League or any competition until you're actually lifting the trophy, let's face it, but... When they've maintained uh, a good distance between them and the chasing pack, led by none other than Manchester City, um, and I guess to continue the Steve Corica sort of analogy, we're just waiting for Arteta to bugger things up. Um, but in what was a mighty clash against a resurgent Manchester United, um, Arsenal again proved themselves. Uh, and most importantly, I guess, if they need to, prove themselves to themselves, because that's the only thing that's going to stop them from here self-doubt. Two-horse race now, do you think? United's now 11 points behind Arsenal and Arsenal have a game in hand. Yeah, I I think it's too difficult. Look, Manchester United put themselves in this position because they went on a a winning streak and you you can never discount 
teams doing that, but it, it would seem that, that, that the gap, uh, whilst Man United need to be stringing wins together, they're going to be needing the top two to be stringing losses together. It, it's just, the calculus just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it looks like it's going to be a great two-horse race between Arsenal and City. Arsenal five points clear with a game in hand. We're just over the halfway point of the season. Andy, where do we find you today? Sometimes it's in the car. Last week it was in the surf. Where are you today? Uh, well, I, well, I'm going to I'm going to blow my local cover, but I am co-side again. At Foster, I'm sitting at the Beach Bums Cafe, looking at Foster Main Beach, and I'm enjoying a, a, a coffee and a catch-up with uh, Matilda's great Heather Gary. We're having a lovely time. Oh. Yeah, it was it was it was going fantastic till you called, George. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> well, what are the what are the what are the poor people doing, Andy? Every you're in these beautiful locations every time we speak to you. Well, I just told you, I'm drinking coffee with Heather Gary. That's what the poor people are. Oh, there's no need to be dropping names, Andy. <laughs> okay? Uh, hey, as always, mate, great to chat. We'll do it again soon. Sure. A pleasure, mate. See you, mate. Andy Harper from Channel 10 and Paramount Plus uh, Football Expert. Uh, let's get a break away. Got time to talk some golf. Uh, Min Woo Lee went very close uh, on the European Tour last night. He finished uh, in a tie for second. Uh, just one behind the eventual winner, Victor Perez. Uh, that was in the Abu Dhabi HSBC Golf Championship. And John Rahm at the moment is the hottest player in golf. Another win on the PGA Tour, 27 under. Uh, Jason Day, the best of the Australians uh, at 20 under. But still some really good golf to be played uh, in Australia. And Nick Dasty, the PGA's tournament director, Australasia, has been good enough to join us this morning. G'day, Nick. Hey, Julian. How you doing? Very well. Uh, that was, I don't know how much you saw last night, but uh, that was a fantastic tournament. And uh, Min Woo Lee went so close to, to getting the title. Yeah, I did. I actually stayed up and watched it till it finished. Um, some amazing stuff uh, at the end. Uh, Victor Perez's bunker shot that he hold on, uh, hold on 17. It was about a 30-metre bunker shot, and he spun it back about eight feet into the hole and was good enough to admit in the interview after the round that he caught it a bit thin and um, <laughs> wasn't it wasn't quite how he expected it to come out. But um, yeah, then uh, then Min Woo nearly holding his uh, sort of fifty metre pitch shot on on eighteen to to force a playoff. It was uh, it was thrilling golf. Tell us about the for players series uh, and there's obviously. The good news is there's been a boost in prize money as well. But just for those that aren't aware, what is the for player series? So the the WebEx player series is probably, well, it's certainly the most inclusive um, tournament in golf. Uh, we we have men and women competing against each other uh, on, on the same course um, uh, for the same prize money. And so there's only the one title up for grabs. So the course is scaled so that, uh, so that it plays evenly for, for both the male and the female professionals. Uh, a lot of work goes into to the setup to make sure we get that right. Um, we also have elite amateurs in the field playing in the tournament proper. Uh, and then on the weekend, uh, it gets very unique. Uh, we have uh, 16 juniors, elite juniors, join the professionals. So once the cut's made and the top 50 professionals make the cut, um, we have 16 juniors join them on the weekend for their own 36-hole tournament playing alongside uh, the professionals, two pros and, and one junior in each group. And um, and this year with the uh, addition of the All Abilities, um, we have an All Abilities section also on the weekend. So a lot going on uh, within the one tournament, um, but uh, it shows all aspects of, of golf and, and shows how great uh, our sport can be. So four tournaments in all, and uh, the first one gets underway at the Rosebud Country Club this week. 
Yeah, that's right. So we're we're down at Rosebud this week, uh, the third edition of TPS Victoria, which is uh, hosted by Jeff Ogilvie. Um, so first event this week, the prize money, like you mentioned before, has gone to $250,000 um, for each of the four tournaments, um, which is an amazing effort considering, you know, when we launched the, the TPS series back in sort of late 2020 with the, the first event played here at Rosebud in, in early 2021, we... We had two events at that point, uh, Victoria and Sydney, and both those events had $150,000 prize money. Um, so now two years down the track for the third edition, um, we've got now grown to four events in, in the series and, and $250,000 for each each event, uh, so a million dollars across the series, which is fantastic. And, and thanks to our great partners at WebEx and, and all our commercial partners uh, across the across the board. So we've got TPS Victoria, TPS Murray, TPS Sydney and TPS Hunter. Just just give us a snapshot of some of the names that, that people will be able to see if they wander down to Rosebud this weekend. Well, we've got uh, arguably Australia's greatest in, in Kari Webb playing. Um, we've also got Jeff Ogilvie, so, so two major champions and, and two greats of our game. Um Steph Kiriaku, who's uh, yep. you know making a name for herself now on the LPGA tour. Sarah Jane Smith, who, who's been over on that LPGA tour for around 15 years, and and is home at the moment and and having a game down here this week, which is fantastic. Um, some of the young guns on the WPGA tour side of things. Kelsey Bennett just turned pro, um, had her first tournament uh, that finished yesterday, and got beaten in a playoff by another young gun in Cassie Porter uh, out there at Latrobe with the Melbourne in. Invitational, uh, and on the guys' side, last year's champion Todd Sinnott, um, playing very well overseas as well, and uh, and back to defend. And David Michaluzzi, who mm-hmm. is our effectively our current leader of our order of merit, battling it out for that DP World Tour card or one of those DP World Tour cards. And and then uh, a few other young guns like Jake, uh, Jack Thompson, who yesterday won the Asian qualifying school um, and is flying home probably as we speak and, and will be here this week. And and some, some other names that uh, will be familiar to, to everyone listening, Marcus Fraser, Matt Griffin, Jake McLeod, uh, Anthony Quayle. So extremely high-quality field, and uh, and I'm sure that the scoring will be low this week at Rosebud, which is uh, looking an absolute picture. Yeah, beautiful course uh, down there, the Country Club. It's all to Nick Dasty, PGA Tournaments Director, Australasia. Just going back a, a month or so, in as the dust settled, how did you review how the Australian Open work with the men and women playing at the same time? Is there many changes you would make for next year overall? Did you think it was a success? How, how did the review into that go? Yeah, it's still still ongoing, um, but uh, but certainly, you know, there, were, there was a lot of positives came out of not only the Australian Open at the end of the year, but uh, but our Australian PGA Championship and, and all our events um, towards the end of the year, we were really happy with where things are heading. Um, you know, in, in regards to the Australian Open, obviously when you take on something like that, um, three events finishing uh, on the final day, uh, first time ever done at a National Open, um, there's going to be some learnings um, and we're certainly working through those and and have no doubt that uh, with a few little tweaks here and there that uh, the Australian Open later this year will be even more successful than the one that we've, uh, that we've just held. Is this format here to stay with the men and women playing together or is it something that'll be constantly reviewed? I think it's definitely here to stay, but, um, but there'll always be, um, you know, men's tournaments and, and women's tournaments. Um, 
I think um, what's happening here out in Australia clearly ahead of the world on, on this sort of thing and, and it is happening more and more around the world now. So it's certainly an accepted um, format of the game, not only to be playing just men and women as separate tournaments at the same venue, but like what we do in the WebEx Players Series here, playing for one one title and one, one prize money with the golf course scaled. So certainly here to stay, um, but definitely um, there's always going to be men's tournaments and, and women's tournaments and you know I think that's the way it should be we get to get to showcase men's golf in certain weeks women's golf in other weeks and and then bring it all together and um, you know spectators get the best of both worlds being able to come out and see them all at the one venue just finally before I let you go how excited should we be about the future of Australian golf in terms of the young talent coming through both in the males and the females and how important as you mentioned towards the top of this interview that the amateurs take part, you know, the best 16 take part in the, in this format. What sort of experience is that for them as they, they look to develop their career? Yeah, there's, I guess there's two elements to that. There's the elite amateurs that are playing in the tournament proper, which, um, you know, all our best players come through by getting some opportunities to play in some professional tournaments before they actually turn professional. And it, it, um, it it's an amazing thing for them to be able to do. And, and really gets them ready for when they, they make that big leap. But uh, this week with the juniors, um, you know, it, it's going a step further. It's exposing juniors at a, at a lot earlier age um, to elite competition, getting to play alongside, seeing what the, what the players are going through as they're trying to win that tournament on, on Sunday. Uh, they're getting to play in front of TV cameras at 16, 17 years of age and, and get used to that. So it's great for their advancement. Um, but just in general, from a Australian golf point of view, we, we are at a very exciting time. Um, we've always produced great players that have, that have played well around the world. It's, it's been an ongoing thing now for, for a long time. But um, we're certainly in a strong position now. And, you know, Minwoo uh, last night yep. showing that, and, you know, he's still still in his young 20s. And, you know, on the on the girls' side, even, you know, do you think Hannah and Minji have been around for for what seems like ages, but uh, they're still in their 20s and, and got uh, plenty plenty left to give and, and there's a next generation coming through behind them already. So, yeah, very exciting time in Australian golf. Nick, uh, as always, thanks so much for your time this morning and uh, good luck with the Players Series uh, getting underway at Rosebud uh, Country Club. I'm sure it'll be well supported by the public. Thanks again for your time. Thanks, Julian. And, yeah, it'd be great to see plenty of people down here this week. It's It's free entry, so come on down and see the future stars along with a couple of our, our greats. Absolutely. A great field for the Players Series. That was Nick Dasty, PGA Tournaments Director, Australasia. We're getting down to the business end of the Australian Open. We wrap up the round of 16 today. We need to pick some winners. We need to know what's fo- what's happening with the matches today. So let's check in with Steve Quick from Ace Previews. Find better tennis odds at Betfair Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Uh, Steve, good morning. Good morning. How are we going today? Very well. Is this the moment tonight for Alex Dimonor? He's one of those players that everyone in Australia loves. They respect him, but is this the chance for for him to get that big, big win that might see him go to the next level? Absolutely. I think this is the this is the night for Dimonor to make a statement. I, I think he's done a great job of. You know, he's almost flown under the radar a little bit through that first week with the likes of Kokonakis and Popper and kind of commanding all of the attention, but he is playing some some really impressive tennis. Um, and you look through to the United Cup as well, I think that confidence boost from beating Rafa up um, 
up north was really beneficial for him. But I know I think this is the opportunity. He's obviously fit. He's firing. He's going to be able to extend points out, which is exactly what Novak doesn't really want in his current state of fitness. So I think this is a massive opportunity for, for Alex. How injured is Novak, do you think? There's always talk about sometimes he might play up the, the extent of his injuries. He's saying after every match he's really worried about it. Is it hard to get a read on how serious his injury actually is? Yeah, it is. And I think that's the case with you know a number of top tennis players over the years. And, you know, Andy Murray comes to mind from, from years gone by as well. Is that You never quite know what level they are at. Um, obviously, the best indicator is how they're moving and how they're performing within points and, and not to kind of worry about, I guess, the, you know, the, the dramatic look that can maybe come between points at times. So it, it is a little bit tricky to, to find that gauge. But, you know, if there wasn't, an issue, I would be surprised um, that, you know, if they were going to the lengths that they're going to with the strapping and with the um, with the medical timeouts and everything that's going on. So I think there is something going on there, but the, the extent of it, I, I don't think it is maybe as severe as what, you know, Novak's putting on between some of the points, but it, it is going to, I think, make for another interesting spectacle tonight, you know, with the, the entire crowd, it's probably against Novak as well. Couple of big five setters uh, yesterday and last night. Stefano Sitsipas getting over Yannick Sinner and Sebastian Corder uh, getting through, uh, you know, ten seven in that fifth set tie break. Um, just on Sitsipas, how have you rated his tournament so far, and uh, how impressive was that performance? Given that Sinner seemed to have all the momentum going into the fifth set. Yeah, it's been an interesting week, I think, for Sitsipas. This was probably his, his first big genuine test you know, with Sinner last night. And I think at, at various stages when both players got on top or, or had the momentum, they were both you know, playing like players that, that knew that you know, there weren't any of the big names left in their half of the draw, you know, that it, it's Corder and Horkacz and, and Leheka that, that are the three that are left in, in this section. So I think they knew what was at stake. Um, but I think you know, even going back a couple of years, you know, Sitsipas probably drops that match and, and isn't able to kind of get that momentum back in the fifth set. So I think it was a, a really strong response um, and, and a couple of uh, sloppy service games from Sinner in the in the fifth set was probably his undoing there. We're speaking to Steve Quick from Ace Previews. We spoke to you about Ben Shelton late last week. He was playing Alexi Popper and I don't think many Australians would know much about Ben Shelton. We know who he is now. He dismantled Alexi Popper and now takes on JJ Wolf, which is Probably not a match many people thought would be a fourth round of an Australian Open. No, absolutely, and I think it's it's a match that you know you you would have seen you know potentially on the on the Challenger Tour over in the US in the the latter part of last year. But you know that both players are playing incredibly well. I think you know when you look at Shelton, even with that win over Popper, and I think he's doubled his career prize money just in this week alone. So you know he's certainly come onto the scene in a big way. But both are, are very flashy players. Both have a lot of power. And it's going to be really interesting, I think, over the best of five to see how these two match up and, and compare. I think they'll both be able to go on, on little runs, I think, across the course of the match. But, look, I, I think when you, you look at it and, you know, just looking at the, the current odds, it looks like it's about a coin flip, which, which seems about right, I think, between these two. And it'll be interesting to see how they both handle the occasion. Give us your thoughts on the match between Andre Rublev, the number five seed, and the number nine seed, uh, Holger Rune, who's a rising star in the sport. Who do you like in that one? In that one, I like Holger Rune. I, I think he is a little bit more dynamic than, than Andre Rublev. So Rublev is, 
has put together some strong performances this week. But I think, you know, his lack of a plan B, you know, he, he does hit a hard ball off both wings. He, he plays a very aggressive style. I just don't know if that's going to hold up over the best of five against um, against Holger here. I think, you know, we, we look back to, you know, even 12 months ago, Rune was playing here and, and was cramping in third set matches. And, you know, it, it was a real struggle for him to physically get through any matches. But when we look now, fast forward, he, he's put forward to get, you know, he's put a very impressive 12 months together. He won the... the ATP 1000 event in, in Paris beating Novak in a tight three-setter. He's got all the tools now. He's got the confidence in his body. Um, I think this is going to be a a bit of a statement match, I think, for, for Holger Rune to really you know, stamp himself at, at Grand Slam level to, to make that, that next leap towards the, the top players. On the women's side, I think we're all sort of shaping up for a quarterfinal between Coco Goff and Igor Sviantec. It's not going to happen. They're both out. It was interesting to hear... Uh, Sviantec talked yesterday about feeling the pressure, feeling the expectation of being the red-hot favourite in the tournament. How much did that result yesterday shock you? Yeah, look, it was a shock. Um, I think in, I think it was more so the way that she lost that match in straight sets was probably the, the more shocking part of it. Um, you know, right back in that, you know, one Wimbledon last year, she, she plays a very, very big game. And, you know, when, when everything's clicking for her, you know, it's very tough at the other end of the court to, you know, be able to come up with, with anything to really beat her. But I think it was the way that, you know, Shriotek, you know, got ahead in that second set. I think, you know, she, she was up a break and handed it back pretty lazily, I think, through that, that first, you know, couple of games after after breaking serve. I think it's going to be an interesting to see how, you know, Shriotek handles the next couple of months. Obviously, she's far and away the top-ranked player. But it's going to be interesting with a lot of these power players who can really, you know, keep her on her toes and and you know unsettle her a little bit. I think it's going to be a it's going to make for an interesting couple of months on the on the women's tour overall. But I'm I'm really excited to see which player can take that next step up now in the second week, knowing that she's out of the draw, uh, to be able to, to you know take home a grand slam. So we've only got three of the top 10 seeds in the women left. Uh, Jessica Pagula, who won yesterday. Caroline Garcia, who plays tonight, the number uh, today, the number fourth seed. And also Arnis Sabalenka, the number five seed. If you had to be putting your money on someone right now to win the tournament on the women's side, uh, given the top two seeds are gone, who would it be? I think on the level that, that's been produced over the, the course of the tournament, I think Jessica Bugul is probably one to look at at the moment. I think her, her next round will be against Victoria Azarenka, who finished up, I think it was just after 2am this morning on uh, on Rod Laver Arena. So I think that's probably the, the place to look, um, you know, out of those three plays in particular. But I think when you look to the, the bottom half, I think the winner of the Sabalenka-Belinda Bencic match is going to have a big say on the, the bottom half of the draw. I think that's you know, almost worthy of a, a semi-final type matchup, but we're we're getting it here, you know, a little earlier in the tournament. So, you know, if Sabalenka can continue to bring her best, I think she's um she's one to keep an eye on. But you know, if I had to pick one out of those three, it'd be Jessica Pabula at the moment. Yeah, that's first up today on Rod Laver Arena. You were spot on late last week when we asked you what match you were looking at. Uh, you thought uh, Fuchovic could really put Sinner under pressure early, which was exactly what happened. Sinner got o- over the line in the end in, uh, in five sets. Uh, any other match today in particular you really like? Uh, I'm interested to see how uh, Caroline Garcia goes against Magda Lynette. Um, I think Lynette's put in a, a really impressive tournament, beating a, a couple of big hitters in, in Contivate and Alexandrova more recently. So I'm curious to see how she goes against Caroline Garcia, who had a bit of a scare uh, in, in the last round. So 
I think that one might be a little bit closer than the, the current odds suggest. But otherwise, it's, it's all eyes on Alex Demonor tonight. And to see, you know, I think if he can really snatch that first set and come out strong, um, I think he's a, a massive chance against Novak. Just one more before I let you go, Steve. It was interesting to see at the end of the Andy Murray uh, Roberto Badista Agut match that there didn't seem to be a lot of love between both players at the net. It, it appeared like Batista Agut didn't like the fact that the crowd was all for Andy Murray. Is there history between those two? Is that normal for Agut to be quite a intense, fiery character? What do you make of the way that that sort of match unfolded? And as I said, there didn't seem to be much love at the net when the two shook hands. Yeah, he can be a little bit tense and, and fiery at times. And yeah, I, I think the crowd support, which really, you know, was it was a very pro-Murray crowd, which, you know, you, you can't blame them based on what he's been able to produce, not just this week, but across his career at, at Melbourne Park. It, it, is, it is a little bit of a funny one. Obviously, these two have played, you know, a, a couple of times before. I think probably the most memorable one was uh, Bautista a good defeating Andy Murray in, in 2019 in that match where um, the Australian Open tried to almost retire. I think it was Andy Murray with the, the yes. farewell video and, and everything as he was off to have his hip surgery. So, look, they've had a lot of, of, of interesting battles over the over the time. But I think, you know, Bautista is the type of player who, you know, in a way kind of feeds off that, that crowd negativity a little bit. So I, I don't think it worried him too much, but I think he was pretty glad to, to come away with the win at the end. And he's back in action today against uh, Tommy Paul. Uh, Steve, thanks for your time. We'll uh, touch base again throughout the week. Perfect. Thanks for having me on. Steve Quick from Ace Previews. You can find better odds on the Australian Open at Betfair. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. We talked about it yesterday. Just that chip on your shoulder. Everyone talking about a neutral AFC championship game. Not even thinking about you guys. How much did that motivate you coming into this? You better send those refunds. He's had the last laugh, Joe Burrow. Uh, what a performance it was this morning by the Bengals uh, defeating the Bills in Buffalo. Ben Graham joins us for Neds. Whatever you bet on, take it to the Neds level. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Uh, ben, good morning. We spoke last week. We, we thought, is it a worry the way the Bills played against the Dolphins? And it seemed like they, they sort of took that form into this match as well. Absolutely they did, but let's not take the credit away from the Cincinnati Bengals who played an extraordinary game against the Bills team. So yes, they've shown some vulnerabilities over the last month or so despite continuing to win, but they came to the fore today. They didn't necessarily turn the ball over as much as they have in their last three games, but they were inefficient on offense, couldn't run the football. Uh, They couldn't find their receivers as at will like they have before. Their defence, their defensive front couldn't get to Joe Burrow. We know that that offensive line of the Bengals has been a weak point for the last couple of years. They did improve on it in the off-season, but three new starters there today, given the injuries that they've got. They couldn't get to him. They couldn't lay a hand on him. Joe Burrow got the ball out of his hands as quick as I've seen, and they were able to establish the run game which has been one of their weaknesses all year. Joe Mixon had a great game over 100 yards and a touchdown. But statistically, Joe Burrow, it doesn't look like he's had an extraordinary game. But the way he was able to manage his way through that Bills defense, keep the drives alive, and it didn't matter if it was a touchdown or a field goal, to have a three-score advantage for most of the game was a great start, a great finish. And i tell you what, they're going to go to Kansas City with a whole heap of momentum as they did last year, the last two times they've met, both 
scores have been 27-24 between the Chiefs and the Bengals. The Bengals prevailing, and the one in the AFC Championship game last year went to overtime. So it's going to be a scintillating matchup, but there'll be a Patrick Mahomes watch all week yeah. for that high ankle sprain. I was going to ask you about that. Uh, that looked nasty. He came back on, but he certainly didn't look right. Uh, high ankle sprain's probably not horrendous, but... I mean, is there any doubt he'll get out there at all? Or even if he's far off 100%, he's going to get out there anyway? Well, we've seen with high ankle sprains before, and it's sort of a new terminology when it comes to injuries. Because they tape their boots onto their their uh, ankles, at times it's not just a rolled ankle. It's up sort of above the ankle, almost a lower leg. Where it's It's an injury that you see them in a boot for maybe two or three weeks and then a couple of weeks recovery. But it mustn't have been that bad for him. At the end of that half, he was so adamant that he wanted to get back out on the field. And credit to the training staff who said to Andy Reid, he's not going back on the field until we go in at halftime and assess him. So give him the pain medication and restrap him. He was proppy in the second half, but he did make an amazing throw for a touchdown to Marquez Valdez-Scantling off one leg. I tell you, a 75% fit Patrick Mahomes is probably better than most quarterbacks in the NFL anyway. He'll, he says that he'll get to as close as 100% as possible, but there's no doubt that's going to be huge in terms of how this game plays out if he's not 100%. Just going back to the Bills, I mean, it's probably something we'll never know, but given all the emotion that's been at that franchise in the last few weeks off the back of Tamar Hamlin, do you think that's had an effect on the way they've finished the season? Uh, no, I don't, Jules. I, uh, being in an NFL locker room, the way you prepare for the for the games, I don't think that there would be an emotional hangover. I mean, what happened was over a month ago, they know he's in good hands and he's, he's recovering well. He was at the game today. Once that ball is snapped, I don't think that it has any effect. I, there has been signs before that. And you remember the start of that game that was postponed. The Bengals got off to a good a start as they did today. I think there's been some vulnerabilities with the Bills over the last month or so. And unfortunately, they came all out at the wrong time by facing a good team like the Bengals. This is a, you know, we talk about the Giants getting smacked by the Eagles yesterday but we'll still call the Giants' season a successful one, given what was expected of them during the preseason. They win a playoff game. But for the Bills, having that sort of season, preseason Super Bowl favourites, to finish like that, now that's a disappointing season. Just on the Giants, you mentioned they were, you know, they were beaten comfortably yesterday by Philadelphia. Did the, did the size of that result surprise you, or, or did you always think the Eagles would win that game comfortably? No, I thought that they would win comfortably, but not that comprehensively. The Giants, after they rested their starters against the Eagles week 18, which essentially gifted the Eagles the number one seed, and that was a close game, 22-16. But the game that they played back in week 14, where the Eagles won 48-22, that was the game that I looked at to try and understand the way the Eagles would go about this. And it played out very similar fashion. They ran the ball... 268 yards and three touchdowns. Jalen Hurts did as he pleased. The defensive line of the Eagles got to Daniel Jones, sacked him five times, forced him into some errors. And as good as they were last week, the Giants, in beating the Vikings, they were 
they were the Eagles forced them to be a poor football team, but again, they weren't expected to make the playoffs. First time in seven years, Brian Daybol win coach of the year. They've got lots to look forward to if they can get through this free agency window that they've got so many stars on their team embarking on free agency. But the Eagles, having the number one um, the number one seed and the bye last week, they would have watched this 49ers outfit continue to roll and everyone started to get on board and all of a sudden the 49ers became the best team in the NFC and the Eagles just, I think, put pay to that or at least said, hey, don't forget about us. So... If the Eagles, no matter who they play, this Cowboys and 49ers game looks locked at six all approaching half time. It's going to be what we're seeing in the AFC is the two best teams, Chiefs and the Bengals, and in the NFC, the Eagles and either the 49ers or the Cowboys is going to be a great showdown. Absolutely. You mentioned it's tight and it's tough. It's six all close to half time between the 49ers and the Cowboys. How's Brett Maher going at the moment for the Cowboys, do you think? Uh, Kicking was off last week. He's had one charge down today, which, looking at it, was probably going to miss anyway. I mean, in a tight, low-scoring game, if he doesn't get it right, it's going to be costly. Very costly. Don't ever sleep on special teams, particularly in playoffs. We know last week he missed four extra points. Now, he could have been 100% during his entire year. So he's got some credits in the bank. I know the owner, Jerry Jones, says that your job is safe, then it is probably safe, but for one week until you miss your next kick, which <laughs> I know this one was blocked, so he will get a pass for that. But I tell you what, if this game comes down to an extra point or a field goal and Brett Maher is lining up, it's going to be nervous times for the young man. I, I don't think you can make a change. You'd rather go with what you know in this situation. It's not just the kicker, there's the snap, there's the hold. But there's no doubt that the pressure's going to be on Brett Maher if he gets another opportunity, which he will in this game against the 49ers. So is there room for them to make a change? I mean, how many how many other kickers are on the roster? So they have one kicker and one punter on the active roster. Now, depending on the team, they will have a backup on their practice squad. But essentially, there are only 32 jobs in the world and there's probably, you know, another 32 kickers out there that are ready-made NFL kickers, but they just haven't had that opportunity. But when, you know, you generally make a change or you have a, a backup plan, you have kickers and punters on a, on a list that you can call on if something was to happen to your incumbent. But when it comes to form... They bring kickers in all the time. I would no doubt on Tuesday of this week, just gone, that the Cowboys would have brought in four kickers off the street to work on what is their backup plan in case Brett Maher has another shocker, which he's, he's done nothing to, uh, to quell those, uh, those workouts that the Cowboys probably would have had. I don't think they'll make a change, though, Jules, um, especially during the playoffs. It's been a Ben Graham uh, for Neds. Whatever you bet on, take it to the Neds level. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. So it's tight in this one, uh, putting your prediction hat on. Who, who gets over the line here? Well, if both teams play at their very best, the 49ers win. But if for some reason Brock Purdy in his seventh start um, shows and make some rookie errors if the de- defence as a, it gives up a few more yards. I mean, they're second against the run. Their defence has been phenomenal, really, 
and their offense has been even better since Brock Purdy's came on board. For the Cowboys, if they play at their best, like they did against the Buccaneers, then they're every chance to win. But given Dak Prescott's already thrown an interception, their defense is the unit that has come to play against his 49ers offense, only holding them to the two field goals thus far. But I think on the balance of things, the form that the 49ers have bought in, the weapons that they've got on offense and defense, if they can stop the Cowboys from running the football, I think they'll win by field goal. And I hope it's not because Brett Maher misses. <laughs> oh, we'll all be thinking of Brett Maher if it gets uh, tight in this game. Just before I let you go, Ben, uh, going ahead to next week, we don't know who the second matchup is. The Eagles play the winner of this game. You touched on it before. The Bengals and the Chiefs have played two outstanding games the last two. Um, who do you like next week? Well, oh, I've always liked the Chiefs. Of mid-season, I think that what they've shown without Tyreek Hill, they've got diversity from a running back perspective. If there's one play that summed the Chiefs up where I think that they can win it all is they were third and long, and Pacheco, the running rookie running back for the Chiefs, he got the ball in traffic, he bounced to the outside, he turned on the Jets, and he ran 39 yards for a first down and out of bounds to stop the clock in a, in a critical time against the Jags. I do like the Chiefs. But we know that Joe Burrow breaks hearts. We saw it last year. I know they fell short in the Super Bowl. But they look as ready as any team. So that's going to be a sensational matchup. I think the Chiefs will just win in a high-scoring sort of shootout. Um, I think the Eagles will beat the Cowboys if that's the NFC Championship game. But I think the 49ers might get the Eagles if the 49ers are able to get over the Cowboys today. But either way, two great matchups to look forward to. Ben, uh, thanks for your time. Enjoy the rest of the game today, and uh, we can't wait for next week already. We'll talk to you next Monday. Thanks, Jules. Benny Graham for Neds. Whatever you bet on, take it to the Neds level.